everyone, this is Zach and Andrew, and we are doing a podcast A to Z. Uh, Andrew, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Zach. It's nice to be back, even though we're in the midst of a kind of, well, it's getting cliche to say weird moment, right? Isn't yeah. It? Just, <laughs> it is, but kind we're of tired of saying it. We're powering through it, right? We're uh, practicing right. Safe, safe social distancing. Uh, I know the last time uh, we met, we uh, last two times actually, we started off with our first two episodes. The first one was kind of a broad, like, uh, is there a God? If there is, what significance is it uh, to believe in a God? And then we kind of narrowed it down the second episode to, okay, what what if there is a God, what would that God look like? Um, and then we kind of broke down the different uh, polytheisms and monotheisms. And then we, you know, as we wanted to do, we kind of honed in on Christianity. Uh, and that kind of leads us to where we're going to be launching off today. Do you kind of want to, you want right. to explain a little bit more of that? Right. So we've decided at this point, we want to narrow down, keep narrowing the argument, right. Um, to get to this question about Jesus himself. Um, we talked obviously a little bit about that in the last episode, but here, um, we want to look at the sort of the historical person of, of Jesus. Um, uh, we're sort of answering in three episodes, trying to a- uh, answer the question, who was Jesus? Um, you and I talked, and we kind of thought that, that being that this is Holy Week, we're recording this so the, the day before Easter, um, it would be good, especially in an era when people can't like get into church a whole lot right now in person, um, to... I don't know, put some material out there about this issue. And so we're going to do a three-part little mini-series here on this topic uh, and focus on the last week of Jesus' life. Um, part one will be about the week leading up to um, the trial and execution. Mm-hmm. Uh, part two will be about the trial and execution itself. And then we'll look at the uh, resurrection and the third part of the episode. And, and, uh, sorry, the third part of the mini-series. And the the purpose here is really, again, to sort of answer this question about who is Jesus. Um, Yeah. And so that's that's sort of what we're doing in a a nutshell. And this is episode one of three on that topic. Good. Yeah. So that just, uh, that's going to kind of be our summary as we're, you know, closing up on Holy Week right now in our uh, present day. But uh, yeah, so like we're going to take a look at this series, like um, is Jesus, uh, how does he identify, right? Was he just a good moral teacher? Uh, was he right, a philosopher? Right. Was he some kind of crazy wingnut prophet out there just kind of spewing this stuff out? Uh, and, or was it some kind of hybrid, right? Some kind of combo. Right. So right. Uh, where do you think is a good place to start? For, for me, I, I think where we have to go um, in, in a nutshell is to the Gospels themselves. Um even if you're a skeptical scholar, um, there just isn't a whole lot of material about the man, Jesus himself, outside of our Gospels, the four Gospels we have. Um, there were, of course, later kind of quote-unquote Gospels, but they're much more removed from the scene in a whole bunch of ways uh, than Jesus himself. Um, and even in the rest of the New Testament, you know, someone like Paul there isn't a ton of biographical material about Jesus. So really, again, even if you're a skeptical scholar, the place you have to go is the Gospels. Um, and so what I think we're going to try to do here is look at this question and not necessarily just assume that the Gospels are, say, like, uh, I don't know, divinely inspired texts, right? Mm-hmm. Which that may be true. Yeah. We, I think you and I both agree with that's, that's the case. That's our <laughs> position. 
On the other hand, we're going to try to approach these texts more like they're just another form of historical literature, right? They're historical data that are they're telling us something um, about the earliest roots of Christianity. Right. Um, so that's kind of where we're going to try to go with this in this mini-series, is, is really focus on Gospels tell us about, about Jesus. Because really, when it push comes to shove, they're where you have to go. All scholars um, have to go to the Gospels to try to make sense of, of who Jesus was. So let me just pause right there. So you're, and we don't want to get into too much detail, but Andrew basically is studying uh, professionally for the rest of his life, uh, the first four <laughs> centuries uh, from Jesus and afterwards, right? So right. I would ask you, you know, these people that say, well, the gospels are made up, they're not really real, they're not really authentic, or how are they even put together? Like there's a lot of criticism around how the gospels were put together, certainly, right? Certainly. Like we, we don't know if these were strangers. Some people say they were made up, they're manipulated. So like what kind of factual evidence do you have for the credibility of the gospels? Like what right. would you kind of share with people in a, in a, a quick five, 10 minute summary of why these are credible sources. Right. That's an excellent question. Um, and it's one that we have to ask. Um, there's a couple of different arguments I would go to. Uh, as someone who studies ancient history generally, um, I try to put the Gospels in the context, sort of grade them on that curve, right? So what do we know about ancient history or ancient figures or peoples or empires generally? Um, and say, okay, Depending on the sort of debates we have about those things, can I apply those same standards to the gospel? So it's, it's, it's a good question. Yeah. The first thing I would want to tackle with this um, is sort of how do we reconstruct the texts themselves? Um, mm -hmm. I've got in front of me here on my desk um, a Greek New Testament. And this New Testament, if you, if you look through them, if you get yourself um, a critical edition of uh, the, the New Testament in the Greek, it will actually show you um, all the different versions, the copies, uh, the quotations from uh, papyri, which are basically, it's basically ancient paper, scrolls, um, quotations from early church fathers, early Christian authorities, um, and they actually will go through and show you in the notes uh, every single textual variant we have. Um, and basically, the short of it is this. We have so much of the New Testament, and it mostly the Gospels especially. Um, it's even been said we have so many quotations alone of the New Testament uh, by later Christian authorities that we could basically reconstruct the Gospels and the New Testament just from their quotations alone, not even having to bring in, uh, say, papyri that we found. And we have many, many scraps of the New Testament uh, that were just copied down, that are survive and come down to the modern world. Um, the next runner-up would be something like, uh, I think it's either Plato or Homer. Those are in second or third places. And we have actually far fewer copies of those texts. Um, so first of all, if it makes sense, what, I, what I'm trying to point to here is we have a fairly high degree of confidence about what the original Gospels said. If you have right. if you have these these scraps right, you can start to reconstruct where they're different, where they have variants, um, and see okay what what did the the text actually say? Um, and as ancient texts go, the New Testament is in fairly good shape. Um, where there are textual variants, um, you can have um, if, for example, I'm looking here in the Gospel of Luke. Um, this is Luke chapter one, and I'm looking down. This, this is just a random page. And it's the uh, the song, the, the Magnificat, uh, that Mary sings. 
And there is a little note here that uh, says, um, after she's done singing her song, right, there's this, this verb that says something like, um, she makes a comment. Um, and, but it's not in one version of the New Testament. It says explicitly, Mary made a comment, right? And then other versions, it just doesn't put the subject explicitly. It says, you know, she, she made a comment. Um, and so, uh, what you can tell is that most of the variants we have are really not that different. They come down to little differences like that. You know, is there an article? Um, is there, um, you know, so you're saying like, you know, so-and-so went to, you know, a house or do they say going to the house? Okay. That's most of the sort of variants that we have. So we have a pretty good idea. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, I was just gonna say. So reliability isn't how everyone pictures. It has to be word for word, same exact thing, yes. but it more or less has to be in the same ballpark. Yes. Um, and from what I've seen, like we have like thousands of these transcripts, right? Yes. And back in the you know the early centuries, uh, right after Christ's ministry, like you would get copies of like Paul's letter, and there'd be copies of these yes. letters in the church, and then people, uh, monks would make more copies. And from what I've research there's about 10,000 copies of these different unique writings right. and it's almost like a textbook today that you would get from you know uh, your favorite autobiography yep. or uh, you know a favorite story that you've written or read uh, that you know you could tell the difference if the story ended differently right right exactly you could tell if like a line and the story was different like because people knew it yep you know yep. and that's kind of that would point out the flaws you know it'd be like uh, what's a famous literature, you know, like the Gatsby. Yeah. We all yeah. The Gatsby yeah. That's a good then, one. You know, one character was different or had a different name. You know, perhaps there's yeah. a plot twist and we're all like, hold on, this isn't consistent with what all the other churches are saying right. or all the other letters. So that kind of brings validity into it because yes, you can, you can point out a fraud. Yeah. <laughs> you, can, you can point out fake manuscript. Exactly. And so that's one thing. We have a pretty good idea about what the original said. And I know that's a big hang up for some people. People think, ah, yeah, this was written in the Middle Ages. They think it's like right. um, uh, you hear the example about the telephone game a lot. And I just don't think that's really actually how this this works. Uh, this is the, the, the texts of the New Testament are in fairly good shape. So then if we actually turn to the text like themselves and the story they're telling us, we assume, okay, this is basically what, you know, Luke or John or whoever um, was trying to tell us. Um, there's a couple different ways that we could approach the, the reliability of the texts. Um, one thing uh, we have to take into account is sort of ask, okay, well, what, what do you mean by like historical knowledge? And we've talked a little bit about this already in a few other episodes, um, mm -hmm. but it should be noted that generally ancient literature, and actually, frankly, you know, as someone who, who studies history for a living, a lot of history is actually not like a video camera history, if we're being perfectly honest. Like, it's not the sort of thing where you can absolutely know, you know, with 100% certainty and clarity exactly what happened in a given time or a given order. And I think there's some of that going on in the Gospels, um, which was perfectly standard history for that time. You know, Thucydides does the same sort of thing, um, where he's a, one of the first Greek historians. And he says, look, I wasn't actually there for all these conversations, but there were reports of, you know, this is basically what happened in this meeting when they were planning this war, or here's a here is a speech that somebody gave, and I know it had to sound something like this, and so he he kind of he fills in the gaps, right? 
And that would bother many people with a more uh, very literalistic view of scriptural uh, inspiration. We can put that on the shelf and come back to it, but that's not exactly yeah. the, the approach I think we're going to try to take today. Um, so it wasn't like someone taking minutes at a, exactly. at a corporate meeting. <laughs> and really, there's there are very few you know, histories like that. Like even modern biographies yeah. make so, all sorts of choices about what they're going to leave out, what they're going to contain. I'll give you a good example. There, there's a, a book here on my shelf by a New Testament scholar named Dale Allison. And Allison uh, is not like a believing Christian. Uh, but he believes that large chunks of the Gospels more or less reflect actual things that, that Jesus taught or things that happened in his life. So, for example, uh, Jesus referring to himself as the Son of Man, which I've talked about before, um, is one of the things he thinks would... Uh, he uses this phrase in a couple of different places, that it would just be a massive failure of memory for the whole early Christian community if they you know, if, say something like... Um, uh, one, one thing he focuses on is the Sermon on the Mount. So it's probably, in his his view, it wasn't just a sermon that Jesus gave one time. Uh, if you sort of put the Gospels together, it seems like Jesus was probably going around saying this sort of thing in many different times and places. And Matthew or Luke or whoever you know, ju just put one of those sermons in a long form down that he recorded. Uh, even though it might be more accurate to say literally, that Jesus was, again, saying this sort of thing all the time uh, in many different places. Um, but this was just sort of the Cliff Notes version um, that was appropriate for a story. So that that's one sort of thing we should take into account. The, the Gospels, I don't think, are supposed to be video camera recordings. They, they are stylized, and they make certain selections. Uh, and there's other sorts of evidence you could go to. For example, um, if you look at, some German scholar did this, where he went through and looked at all the names in the Gospels, and he started comparing it with the actual archaeology we have from uh, names that were on inscriptions or names that were on uh, coffins, which are called sarcophagi, um, that they uh, were then compared to, it made basically a big database, and, and sort of looking at how these names compared. Uh, and then he compared them to later writings about Jesus, the so-called uh, apocryphal gospels, which we, which we know were not anywhere close to the time or written in the same region. Uh, and he started, he found something very interesting, which was that the, the original gospels and the names and the place dates and all that sort of thing, that they actually are much more closely aligned with the sorts of names they're using. Uh, to the names that are in the actual New Testament. Whereas if you look at the names that are in the apocryphal Gospels that we know aren't actually close to the source material, they have names that don't actually make a whole lot of sense for first century Palestine. They're using names that are very common in, say, Egypt or Syria or wherever, but they don't actually represent the place and the time. Um, that's the other sort of evidence that I would go to. Um, and we could talk about this. I mean, there's been books and books and books written on this back and forth. Um, but more or less, um, I'm of the opinion that, yeah, the Gospels do give us a pretty good idea of what was happening in first century Palestine. Um, the last sort of thing I would say is just it makes sense in terms of uh, first century Judaism. We've talked a little bit about this before, but the sort of world that, that Jesus seems to belong to in these Gospels, uh, the more we have found about uh, say, the Dead Sea Scrolls or um, 
just even archaeology uh, and piecing together the sorts of uh, historical context that was the world that he inhabited, uh, we find pretty quickly that actually the sorts of things he's talking about, the concerns, the way he speaks, talking about the kingdom of God, uh, even down to things like you know the Gospel of John talking about light and darkness. People used to think that was like a Gnostic sort of theme. When in fact, you know, the Dead Sea Scrolls, which are perfectly, you know, historical Jewish texts from the same era, they use that same sort of rhetoric all the time. Um, so those are the sorts of things that I would look to, to kind of ground the Gospels in, in actual history. But I've been filibustering. Um, I think that's maybe enough for, <laughs> for now on the general reliability of, of these texts. Yeah, and I think it's important, too, to note that you know, the Gospels were written after the, the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. And so uh, we get like a back-end story, right? Exactly. We get the completed view where they get to look back in history and say, okay, these are the events that happened from start to finish. Right. Uh, which brings us to like kind of where we're at right now, which is Palm Sunday, right? Right. We had Palm Sunday last Sunday. Uh, we celebrated Good Friday yesterday. Um, and so as you know, we're kind of focusing on the back end of the Gospel story, uh, like What's important about this last week of Jesus's life? I mean, we're getting ready to celebrate Easter tomorrow. I would just kind of throw that ball in your court. Why would you say, uh, what, what would be the importance of Jesus last week in these Gospels? Most Christians, I think, would answer this by just sort of pointing out his, his death and his resurrection, right? In some ways, they see that as being the whole point of the Gospels. Um, that if you just had his birth, death, and resurrection, that would almost be enough. I don't know if that's actually fair to the gospel since much of the gospel material have uh, will have extra material right they're not just about his birth his death and his resurrection now that being said uh there is a disproportionate interest i think in the gospels on the back end of jesus's life um the gospel of mark and the gospel of john especially um have again a kind of disproportionate i think almost half of the gospel of john takes place within the last week of jesus's life um it's the story's climax, right? Like any good story or film or something or, you know, novel um, or even indeed, you know, uh, well-told history. Um, it's got its own climax and its own sort of rhythm to the story. Um, does that make sense? Is that like a, is that getting at what you're asking? Yeah, it does. Okay. Yep. And so I think that the gospels like give hints along the way um, about who Jesus is. So, for example, in Luke 2, the angels come, and he, he seems to be hinting that he's the king, the son of David, the Messiah. Uh, in the Sermon on the Mount and through much of Matthew, you have this impression that Jesus, in some ways, is presenting himself as a teacher who is greater than Moses. Um, in John chapter 1, it's pretty obvious that it is implying that Jesus is God himself in some sense or another. And so it's seen as being, uh, so even though there are hints all the way along, this is, again, the story's climax. It's the culmination of his life um, and his personal mission. Um, yeah. Uh, and I would say that most have said that this part of the Gospels probably gives us the, the best historical glimpse uh, into what the historical Jesus was, was all about and also what, what got him killed. Most scholars tend to zero in on this final week of Jesus' life because, frankly, it's the stuff that most people remembered about him. Hmm. Let me ask you this, just kind of like a broad uh, 
just a question that popped up in my head. Could Jesus have been the Messiah had he not done any of the, the works? What do you mean by the works? Should we, we, should we define yeah, what you, you mean by you that? Yeah, you mentioned, you know, we, we kind of go from, you know, his birth, uh, people hone in on just his death and resurrection, but like the actual like ministry and life of Jesus, does that matter as much? Or would you say uh, it's less than the resurrection? Yeah. Or where, where would that fall in the play? I'm, I'm kind of curious I, your thoughts. I th that's a very good question. I, th I think that they, that unfortunately, the way we tend to tell the gospel or we tell it as Christians has focused again on these very pivotal moments of Jesus' life, but it has tended to sort of mm -hmm. um, turn the volume down on these other areas of his life. Like, you know, the Gospel of Matthew, right? It is not mostly about his, his death and resurrection. They are seen as, you know, integral part of the story, um, but they are not sort of the end-all, be-all. There's a lot about Jesus' teaching and his, his works, as you point out, his, his, uh, his healing, his exorcisms, um, his declaring of good news, the, the coming of the kingdom of God, that it's present in, in the now. Um, so I think, you know, could he have, maybe if, maybe if I'm following your question, could, could he have done it differently? Um, I suppose, um, but I think there's a reason that Jesus' life, um, at least in the gospel, again, trying to treat this not necessarily as um, inspired text, but just as what the gospels themselves are trying to tell us. I think the Gospels see him and see that part of his life as being uh, really important because it was not just not just that Jesus came, okay, and he's going to die, and then he went away. Like that—that that would be a very sort of you know brute, bare bones version of it. But actually, that Jesus was was doing important things, um, if not anything else, but setting an example. And also, I think the Gospels are picking up on this theme that that God had himself had always promised in the Old Testament come and do the sorts of things that Jesus was doing, right? You know, so yeah. bringing, you know, healing the lepers, healing the blind, um, preaching good news to the poor. Jesus is constantly, well, Jesus, as the Gospels report him, is constantly pointing back to those. And the narrators of the Gospels are constantly pointing back to the Old Testament to say, aha, remember that stuff that was you talked about in the prophets and Malachi and Isaiah? Well, that's the sort of thing that Jesus himself seems to be up to. Um, which is a strong hint that, yeah, this is actually very important. This was, as the Gospels see it, this was Jesus um, inaugurating the kingdom of God. Um, that this is what it's yeah. like when God is actually calling the shots. When God's kingdom, his rule, when God gets his way, this is what life looks like. People start getting healed. Um, people turn away from their old lives. Uh, they have um, a, what is the term that Jesus used? A sort of blessedness, right? The, um in the Beatitudes, that this is the, the way the, a follower's life is characterized, um, that, I think, is what he sees as being, um, or that is what I think the Gospels point to um, as being part of the whole role of Jesus' life um, beyond just, again, yeah. the last week of his life, if that makes sense. I'm, I'm rambling, <laughs> but yeah. I, no, I think you're it's good. It's a, it's like, we have yeah. to have a holistic view of who Jesus is, right? Yes. I mean, you can't, I think we like to emphasize different parts. I mean, I've seen entire ministries built on just like the resurrection. I've seen entire ministries built just on, you know, his birth. But to me, the reality is that it's all encompassing. Yeah. Like the, the life of Jesus shows the heart of God, right. like how God loves his people, how he treats his people, what his kingdom looks like, how it intercedes with the world that we live in today. Uh, and his resurrection just proves his deity. Right. Um, 
But like I, I, I get fascinated when I, you know, look at the Apostles' Creed. It doesn't mention any of the things that Jesus did. Uh, yeah, in his life. that's interesting. It just listens lists like facts about his right. life. Right. And I think we live in this world where people think it's like, okay, you just uh, you just have to believe uh, these facts, and that's like your ticket puncher. Yeah. Versus like, no, the the life of Jesus is actually trying to teach us something uh, that's interactive, something that can engage with our spirit and our soul. And so when I ask that question, it's like you have to take the gospel all encompassing, but it's like you said, it's a culmination of this last week of his right. life. Um, so you, you can kind of like, you know, target towards something like what is this all adding up right. to? And then you get to the end and it's like, man, like what what do we make of this last week of Jesus' right. life? And why would we even call Good Friday good? And yeah. uh you know, it's hard to talk about this all in like one podcast, which is why we've <laughs> broken right. it down to three. Right. But I think that's those are important things to talk about. You right. Know? I mean, we're, we're going to eventually get into teachings and talking about what some of the things Jesus was trying to talk about and break those down. But uh, like I said, we're starting very wide. Yes. I like to talk to my friends who don't believe in God at all and try to hone it in. Okay, if there is a God, what would that God look right. like? Um, and then let's study this person of Jesus. Um, and then it all hinges on whether he really resurrected or not. Right. I mean, if he didn't, then there's nothing really worth celebrating for Easter. There's nothing worth talking about. And But we do believe that there is. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I guess I'm kind of curious, like uh, this last week of his life, you know, the entry into Jerusalem, the confrontation of the temple establishment, uh, you know, his choice of Passover. Like, what do you what do you make of all this? Like, how do you kind of interpret this as someone who studies ancient history? And what does this do for your faith? Yeah. A lot of stuff there. The the most, the I would say that most scholars, even even skeptics, tend to zero in on this last week of Jesus' life, particularly what he was up to with the temple. Uh, and the more I've studied this, um, I just finished a book by um, a scholar of Judaism. His name is um, uh, Seth Schwartz. And he, he, in his first few chapters of his book, kind of goes through these uh, the, the background, he's sort of basically laying out the world that Jesus lives in. And, and he emphasizes again and again and again the, how important the temple would have been uh, to Jews of this period. Um, it's some, it's like one of the fixtures. There's like, there's two pillars of the Jewish life at this time, Torah and temple. Um, and, and that is part of the world that they know. And for whatever reason, Jesus seems to be picking a beef with, with the temple, with the temple establishment. Um, so there's a, there's a lot going on there. Um, but the temple is an important place to start. I think, again, most most scholars have zeroed in on this, say, even if the, you know, they doubt big chunks of the gospel or the stories that the gospels are telling us, they tend to think, okay, they have to ha be telling us something right about this moment. Um, this this moment where Jesus, uh, some people have just said like, look, he punched his 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 uh, death ticket here um, by by picking a fight with the establishment in Jerusalem. Um, yeah, that's sort of the the, the basic stuff. Um, should, we, should we talk about Palm Sunday first? Is that a good start? Okay. Yeah, yeah, good place to start. So. I know you tell what what happens on Palm Sunday. Maybe we'll we'll put you on the spot here. What's the sort of well, yeah, yeah. he uh, so Jesus, you know, kind of fulfills Zechariah riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, right? right? Uh, so you have the significance there. Um, you have the people hailing, you know, 
Jesus as king, you know, crowning him. This is the king of the Jews. People in the streets waving palm branches, uh, putting down their cloaks on the middle of the road. Like this is the paint, uh, the picture that's painted, right? Yes. Yes. Um, at least that's how you know we we, we share it in church today. Um, yeah, like so we have the Pharisees kind of watching this, and it's playing out that they're getting kind of nervous, and it's like. It's getting to like the plot of the movie, yeah. right? And you can see like everything's kind of stirring in Jerusalem. The disciples did not want to go there. They felt like this was going to be a time where they basically, like you said, signing their, their death ticket. Um, and so, yeah, that's kind of the, the, the entry to Palm Sunday. Did I hit that accurately? I, I think so. The, uh, did you say the disciples are, are not wanting to go there? Um, I, th- I think from what I've read, they were wanting to go to preach the gospel, but they kind of knew that. They fear for Jesus. Yeah, I think they're definitely confused. <laughs> but, uh, the way yeah, the gospel's like told, yeah. Right. I mean, from the way that I've interpreted it, they're always trying to keep Jesus out of harm's way. Yeah. Like, they're they're constantly trying to avoid certain cities. They're constantly kind of, like, uh, telling them, hey, we should we should leave this town. Like, right. They're trying to direct God's yeah. <laughs> son versus letting him direct himself. Hey, we, we do that so, <laughs> from, from time to time. Yes, we do. Um, yeah, I think that's that's good. Um it's a really interesting moment, uh, the, the Palm Sunday uh, stuff. Um, so being, he seems to be like hailed as king, right? Uh, that the crowd who greets him uh, starts singing Psalm 118. Uh, I was, they're, they're quoting it, right, as the Gospels uh, report it. Um, and it seems like, uh, probably, given that this was a song, I kind of imagine they're singing or chanting it, right? Which puts a little bit more of a flavor, like, you know, even if you were in, like, I, I know you've you've been to the Middle East and, and been in the midst of, um, um, what would you call it, uh, political demonstrations, right? Um, yeah. I kind of imagine this felt a little bit like that, um, where th- this crowd in some ways is not exactly rioting, but, you know, they're making a statement here. And they're singing Psalm 118. Uh, Psalm 118 is one of the choice Passover, um, probably one of the choice Passover um, psalms. Um, today, when the Passover is celebrated, there's five psalms, or sorry, six, excuse me, um, Psalm 113 up through 118. And so they're singing this last, or quoting, singing this last psalm. Uh, and, and the Pharisees in some of the Gospels seem to be getting very nervous about this um, because, yeah, it's, yeah, they seem to be hailing him as king. Um, which for, well, why would that be problematic? <laughs> right. So, um, both Jesus and his disciples, I think you're right, are, are nervous and or confused, but there is a sense that maybe this is the moment. I, I, my, my picture of the disciples is that they're nervous, but they're also like, like they know this is, they, they know this is the climax of the story, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, and they're they're with the guy, yeah. right? Like that's their right hand man is like the star of the show. So, um, yeah, I can totally see that in the in the storyline. Right. Um, this seems to be like the moment uh, that that this, that this is taking place here with, with Palm Sunday, and so the Gospels, um, as you said, point out that this is to fulfill the, the riding on the donkey business is to fulfill a prophecy from Zechari- Zechariah nine. And it also clearly shows that, again, some of the inhabitants of Jerusalem are 
uh, if not just a little con- you know, uh, afraid, they're definitely a little bit confused about who this guy is, right? Because Jesus is not uh, a Judean. He's from Galilee. Um, there's even been some speculation the crowd that greeted him was mainly not of uh, inhabitants of Jerusalem, but were mainly his uh, Galilean entourage. Um, that was like his followers were the ones who were greeting him. And so you can kind of imagine like the, the Jerusalem folks are like looking out like, okay, what's going on here? Uh, as this is passive. Well, yeah, go ahead. To correct some theology around Easter time, we often hear like, you know, the people yelling crucify me were the same ones yelling Hosanna right. as he's walking in. And I'm like, I, I don't see those being the same, same type of people, right. you know, like you said, I think the people yelling Hosanna were the, the, the entourage, right? The, the crowd of people following him saying like, we know this is the son of God. We've seen him heal. We've seen the works that he done. And the people that were yelling crucify him were probably like you said, uh, residents in Jerusalem that maybe didn't know uh, the ministry that Jesus had lived. Right. And so there's this confliction, but I, you know, we pretty much every Easter service I hear at least one or two pastors say that like this, you know, Friday they're yelling Hosanna, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sunday they're yelling uh, whatever, crucify. And it's just like, that's not the way this story unfolds. Yeah. I mean, culturally, it's not the way it would have went down. Yeah. I think that's probably right. Um, I, it's a nice, it's a nice like sermon illustration. Um, and it's possible, I guess, that there were, I mean, obviously the story yeah. of Judas, <laughs> it makes you wonder. Um, yeah. But I guess there could be some, but I think, I think there's something to the argument that, yeah, that these are probably his folks um, more than anything. Or, or remember, Passover, Jerusalem is packed with people from all over the Mediterranean, Jews from all over the Mediterranean. It swells. I, I can't remember how much, if it like doubles in size or something like that. But um, a, a relatively big city becomes, you know, crowded and probably a little tense. Um, you know, Passover is kind of like uh, a mixture of Fourth of July and, um, well, Easter for us, I suppose, would be kind of, or Christmas, if you could imagine, you know, uh, combining two other holidays, um, but also having this sort of nationalistic element to it as well. Because, um, of course, Passover, right. the story of the, the, the Hebrews being let out of Egypt, escaping from Egypt because of God, uh, that is a, that's a national story for them. Um, that's, that's about who we are as a people. Um, and, of course, people were worried about shenanigans in the temple, that there would be a revolt started against Rome, um, especially when it's packed. Um, so, yeah, I think people are on edge. Um, it, it's, it's a bit of a powder keg. Um, and then Jesus comes in, you know, and, and sparks start to fly a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Let me let me pivot here. So we kind of see, uh, you know, Jesus' triumphant entry. Uh, and then he goes like up yeah. to the temple courts, right? Um, he does a couple different things like right. cursing a fig tree. Like, <laughs> what do you make of this, like, you know, kind of uh, entry that he has? Like, how, how, how would you break this down? So this is where Jesus seems to be most drawing himself, again, as the Gospels tell it. You know, if you don't, if you don't right. buy the Gospels, I get it. But let's just talk about what do the Gospels themselves say. The Gospels seem to say, again, that he is setting himself, you know, directly in opposition to, because it's not just, you know, the temple, right, that he's establishing himself um, in opposition to. He's establishing himself against a whole, like, 
business model in some ways. The whole area of Judea is dominated economically, politically, uh, ritually by the temple, right? People depend on their livelihoods for this, um, not least like the, the powerful priests at the top. Uh, and so you come in cleansing the temple, right? Turning tables over, calling it a den of robbers. You're making a pretty like bold statement. Uh, and not only are you making a statement, but you're challenging... I mean, it would be like, uh, it would be like some movements today that, you know, uh, what, like riot or um, demonstrate against the banks, right? Um, which in some ways is like the political, or sorry, economic, in some ways political, um, heartbeat for the United States, right? Um, finance is very important. Uh, that's kind of like what Jesus is doing here, right? So he's he's not only just challenging um, you know, money changers in the temple courts. He is also challenging the priests. He's challenging in many ways, again, kind of the heart of Judaism in his time and saying, yeah, this is kind of, um, this is kind of not what it's supposed to be. In fact, uh, that's a very weak way of putting it. He, he, he's, you know, he's, he's really, you know, no holds barred here. He, he's going right. after the temple. Yeah. And so the I mean, he almost the, comes off like yeah. he has something like against the temple. Right. Oh yeah. We know, yeah. We know he doesn't. He just more or less is trying to set it in the right path. Right. And so, what happens with the? You we're talking about the fig tree. Can you explain what? What's the? Refresh us. What happens with the fig tree? Yeah. Jesus walks by. He's with his disciples. He curses a fig tree, and then the fig tree dies. <laughs> so he's obviously right. using it as an illustration. Um, but at least the the disciples kind of puzzled. Right. Oh, it leaves many readers kind of puzzled, too. <laughs> There's a couple of different things going on at the fig tree. One, I believe this is Mark's gospel that, that makes this most uh, poignantly. But the fig tree, there's two parts to the fig tree. Um, let me just see if I can turn there real fast. The, the, the fig tree story in Mark is, what would you call it? A kind of uh, sandwiched um story where it, one part of the story uh where he, he curses the fig tree um and then he goes and makes a mess in the temple and then they find out later that the fig tree has died um i could have that wrong here just looking at my my new testament um one of the gospels so this is what happens in one of the gospels i'm forgetting which one um i thought it was mark but i could have my my memory messed up here um so they uh they go by this fig tree, as you said. Jesus curses it. And then the gospel writer tells us he goes into the temple and, you know, makes his, his this has been called his temple tantrum, mm -hmm. um, where he turns things over. Then, uh, later on, he comes back and the fig tree re-enters the story and they've seen that the fig tree has withered. Right. Um, again, I can't remember which gospel this is, uh, but the point is this. So if, it's, it's a very clever literary device where he has taken the you know, the fig tree brackets the temple and so it's been i think argued correctly that this is a reference that the fig tree is a symbol of the temple itself in fact if you find there's a reference in isaiah um i believe to god like chopping down a fig tree and it stands for the temple and so the cursing of the fig tree is a highly symbolic moment where uh, God, well, Jesus, <laughs> is making a you know, very pointed statement about the temple. 
um, that the temple itself is under judgment, in much the way that this, this fig tree is. In the meantime, Jesus has this flurry of rather, un he's teeping, teaching in the temple, right? In Mark, sorry, Matthew, as it tells it, uh, there are um, quite a bit of like teachings and parables that go on after Jesus has made his um, initial, again, temple tantrum. Um, some of these involve parables about vineyards, very unsettling parables about vineyards that, that are actually so, with many of Jesus' par parables, they're not very obvious uh, exactly what they mean. In fact, they're, they're kind of brain teasers. They're, they're made to be difficult for, their, for the listeners. But in this case, he starts talking about these, these vineyards um, and bad tenants who won't uh, pay up what they're owed to the landlord, who then get like, some really nasty stuff happen to them. Uh, the, the Pharisees and the, and, the, and the leadership, the establishment there, realizes very obviously that this parable is about them. Um, and the vineyards themselves, I, I even imagine that Jesus is sitting there in the temple courts, um, and he's talking about this, one of the, one of the um, stories about the vineyards is, is very interesting because it's kind of this, uh, he's describing how God, or not, well, God, but the, the vineyard owner goes around, builds a wall, uh, he puts a, a great press there. It's almost like he's describing the architecture of the temple a little bit itself. Um, and so, again, the, the parables seem to be echoing not only God's like relationship to Israel as a whole, but more broadly, he, again, he's reflecting on, on the temple. And finally, he starts talking about like the destruction of the temple. Where he starts predicting it. Yeah. Where, most disturbingly, he, he seems to be connecting it to the end of the world itself. Um, and yeah, that's sort of what he, so you start doing this. If this is sort of an accurate, if, I, if I'm you know, summarizing what all the gospels kind of tell us accurately, what would you think, like, what would you take away from what, what he's saying here? As far as like how he's talking about the, the temple and. Uh, right. If you, the right. If you're a fig tree. Yeah, if you if you're a disciple, or if you're just one of these people in Jerusalem who's hearing him teaching, how are you like receiving all of this? Uh, I mean, it, it kind of depends. Like we were talking about earlier, are you someone that was familiar with Jesus, or are you just kind of hearing him for the first time? Because if you are a devout follower of Judaism, and then now you have someone coming in talking about how the temple is going to be destroyed, uh, how everyone you know they're shrewd vipers, they're Pharisees, like. It doesn't come off very good if that's a system you know and you've lived according to your whole life by. Uh, but if you're someone that's been following him for a while, you have a little more buy-in, uh, and you're kind of really assessing like, what it, what is what's the change going to be, right? Um, yeah. I think that the whole example with the fig tree, the way I've always kind of read that is, you know, kind of how Jesus always uses like, uh, like, uh, like trees and branches and. Uh, you know, he uses living things to describe right, the right. God. Yeah. So when he curses a fig tree, he's kind of like, listen, this fig tree is going to be cursed. It's not going to bear any good fruit anymore because it's no longer good. It's no longer good to grow. And so I think what he was doing in a way was condemning the current practices of the Pharisees, saying this is no longer producing good fruit. Right. This is no longer producing good fruit for the kingdom. And, I mean, we see that in our lives today. We see, like, people out there, you know, that just 
are just awful parents. They're abusive, they're neglecting. <laughs> right. uh, and that like that stems to the child, right? The child grows up, that's what they know, that's how they treat their spouse. And it's like this broken line throughout their family. So you could say the same thing happens spiritually uh, to, to pastors, to priests, and in this case, the Pharisees. Like the, the system that they had set up was actually breaking uh, the way that God intended it. And what Jesus was trying to do was set it back on the right track now that yeah. doesn't settle well with the uh, the powers that be, right? And that's right. kind of where we see the conflict coming and the immediate conspiring for for Jesus' death. Right. And that's kind of. Right. Sorry. Go ahead. Oh no, I think you're absolutely right. I just I, I think it's, <clears throat> it's a, you're you're describing very well how I think this would be received, which is that he's not just. I mean, he, we see him making this mess in the temple, and it's kind of confusing, and we think, oh, okay, he's just sort of he's annoying some priests. But really, he's doing something much more like symbolic than that. Mm-hmm. Um, he's making a statement that, in some ways, again, goes right to the heart of the worldview, right to the heart of the religion um, of so many of these people. And he's saying, "Nah, this isn't quite right." Um, again, as the as the gospels are telling it. So I, I think you're on the right track there. Yeah, and so like that begs the question: like, why did Jesus choose Passover? Yeah, it's so. Can can you tell us like again? Uh, since I've been having putting you on the spot here to summarize, what, what happens at Passover? Yeah, so Passover is a celebration of the Israelites uh, being in Egypt and the plagues, right? Put the blood yep. of a lamb over their door. The uh, plague of death would pass over their house, uh, and so the Jewish people, Israelites, had always celebrated Passover for God just. Uh, bypassing their sins, right, with the blood right. of a lamb. And so that's kind of like uh, a yearly celebration. Like you said, uh, the city uh, doubled, if not tripled in size, because all the Jews would come to this one particular area. People would camp in, in, in the city, outside the city. Uh, but ultimately, it was, uh, it was like the, the, the largest celebration of the Jewish culture. It still is yeah. today. It's one of the largest yeah. today. Um, and so the significance of like, and I know you're going to kind of like, Teen you up here for what uh, yeah. <laughs> what the, the biblical significance of for Passover, but there's a lot of symbolism here, right? This is a lot oh, yeah. of like uh, the Lamb of God that came to take away the sins of the world. And so uh, I'll let you kind of go more in depth on that one. Right. So scholars have pointed out that Jesus seems to be, again, when I've been setting this up, we've been trying to set this up by explaining everything else that led up to the moment where you know, Passover is happening. Um, Jesus seems to be acting not just like in a kind of haphazard way that got himself killed, right? Not by, by accident, but he's again, intentionally making a very pointed antagonizing statement. He's being very aggressive in a lot of ways. Scholars have taken this, I, I think both uh, believer and non, non-believing scholars, um, that Jesus had been planning this highly symbolic move against the temple. Um, and even if you don't think that he is God, or you don't even necessarily think that the Gospels are inspired or something like that, but this this was the moment that this guy had chosen to be sort of the, the swan song of his life. And, and maybe he even knew that he was going to get killed because of this. So why Passover? I mean, there were other moments in the Jewish holiday, that he, other holidays in the Jewish calendar that he could have picked to make his statement. I think the reason he picks Passover is probably, again, because it is like the big holiday um, right. for 
for the Jews. And it also has, I think, more... I mean, he could have picked, say, like the Day of Atonement, um, which in some ways would, would mesh a little bit better with some of our Christian theologizing after the fact. But he actually picks Passover um, because he seems to be trying to draw on the imagery and uh, the mythology, not just like the mythology and like the sense of an untrue story, but I just mean like a rich, deep um, worldview kind of building story. That's what I mean by mythology. He's drawing on that from Exodus uh, in order to say, you know, this is a new moment of deliverance. This is a new moment of God, like creating a new people. It seems like that's part of what the Exodus moment is about. Um, getting God's people out of out of Egypt, uh, getting them across the Red Sea to the other side um, is, is a kind of precursor to baptism, I think, pr pretty clearly in, in the Gospels. The Gospels themselves are drawing on that. So there's all this imagery, right, this rich imagery, and uh, certainly you, you touched on the lamb idea that um, he is... Uh, the, 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 the wrath of God or the whatever that plague is supposed to represent exactly, that uh, the, the blood of the lamb over the door allows, yeah, it, it to pass over. Um, and it's a moment where God's people are, are delivered, that moment of deliverance um, that's also, again, is part of our identity, right? That we are delivered and now we're something new. We're no longer slaves. I think he was trying to draw on all of that. Um, and that's why he chose that specific holiday, um, at least as best as I can tell. Um, because, again, there were other holidays you could have picked from. Yeah, and, you know, as you said, like, <laughs> this this celebration of Passover, um, you know, you got to picture what Jerusalem was like during that time, right? I mean, people buying lambs, people buying bird, like, all this, right. like, purchasing going on for uh, a sacrifice, right, um, for the blood to be spilt and uh, a substitution for their place, right? I mean, that's what yep. the sacrifice system was set up to be. We're going to put our sins on this animal. We're going to sacrifice it. Uh, and that'll be like a cleansing of our soul. Um, but I think it's interesting that Jesus's life was bookmarked by being the lamb. I mean, the first yeah. thing that John says as he starts his ministry is like, behold, the lamb of God that comes to take the sin away from the world. Right. Like, right. That's the beginning, right? That's boom. Jesus is on the scene. Um, yeah. And then it's ended with Passover, which is exactly what the lamb came to do. So, And, and if I can interject, just to add to your point there, John yeah. makes it very clear, like Jesus is dying at the moment the Passover lamb is being slain. Like as if you, just to make sure his readers don't miss it. <laughs> yeah. So yes, yeah, so I just want to add that. In. Yeah. You're absolutely, absolutely. right. Um, yeah, and that's, that's just kind of like drawing us into what Passover is, right? Um, right. And so Jesus is actually praying, though, that this cup would pass from him. You know, like he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. We had the Last Supper. Uh, he's, he's there praying. Like, what, what do you take from that? Who does Jesus actually think he is at this point in time? Yeah, this is you know, kind of getting into the, like, the deep vocation that seems to be. We referred to it a little bit in the last episode, but this... What, who did Jesus think he was, right? If, if the I mean, could he, tell, could, go ahead. could he have been a moral teacher at this point? Like, <laughs> if, if he would have finished his life here, we could absolutely say yes. Jesus was a moral right. teacher, right? But the story didn't. If he goes home and, and dies in old age in Galilee, yeah, he's a moral teacher. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. I just wanted to make that. No, no, no. That's kind of where we started. Yeah, I, as far as the cup passing from him, 
the the prayer in the, in the garden right before he's arrested, um, that seems to be, again, I think tied into this Passover idea that he himself is, because the cup is a very uh, sort of potent image from the Old Testament, from the Hebrew Bible, where the cup is often referred to as the cup of God's wrath um, in the prophets and the Psalms, if, if memory serves. Um, and Jesus seems to be saying, echoing that language about the, the God forcing, say, the nations or disobedient Israel to, to drink the cup of wrath down to the dregs. Now Jesus is the one who seems like he's going to have to drink that cup, um, which is not necessarily, I think, I want to be clear. It's not, I think, that God is like an angry you know, pagan God who's like just waiting to smite people. Um, but that somehow Jesus is having to like go out and meet the natural consequences of like a broken world, right? And he's having to take that upon himself, and he knows that's what's coming. Um, I think that's what the imagery of the cup is about, and he clearly dreads it. Like, just if I can like pontificate for a second, I know Christians sometimes talk about like not fearing death, uh, like oh, you know, you know, you just go to heaven, so there's no. I mean, that's, that's a very glib thing to say. Oh, death, where's your sting? <laughs> yeah, like, which is true. Death which can is true, be painful, but, yes. Right, but only after the resurrection. <laughs> yeah. like, when Paul when Paul talks about that, he's talking yes. about resurrection. But even Jesus himself was afraid of death, right? Yeah. Even that caused him a great fear and anxiety. Um, but I think that, too, is part of the Passover image, that this, this idea of being the lamb, that he is the one who is taking... Um, taking the wrath, right? And again, the wrath of God is a complicated thing. Um, the wrath of God in Romans 1 is not like the white-hot, like, smiting anger of God that's being revealed, as Paul says. It's often displayed as God giving people over to what they want. That is God's wrath, is by, by letting people go and, and yeah. just follow their own way. Which, uh, of course, there is, I think, places where, where God does act a little bit more, um, yes, shall we say, directly <laughs> in confronting evil. Um, but at the same time, it's it's a mysterious, difficult thing, and I think that's part of what's being echoed here, uh, which, again, I think uh, fits into the general idea of what Jesus is trying to evoke by picking Passover as, as this crucial... Yeah, no, I, uh, I agree. I think uh, this is kind of like... Uh, playing a, a role in who Jesus ultimately is. Uh, but, you know, you, you read about, like, the Garden of Gethsemane, you know, and I've actually been in that garden. Yeah. Uh, and I see it, like, overlooking Jerusalem. I can imagine Jesus there weeping, um, you know, the thorns, uh, the crown of thorns that they put on. We don't, like, we think of thorns like these little thorns. Yeah, yeah. Uh, on a thorn bush that's, like, you know, maybe an inch long. But these, these thorns there are, like, four inches long. And so he like doesn't see this cup that he's gonna have to drink is like man this is gonna this is gonna suck he just knows I think the depth of sin that this world has and if he's gonna pay that punishment he really is visualizing this is gonna be really hard like this is gonna be extremely painful uh, because he knows he knew the heart of men he knew the heart of women right. I mean he would call out their sins he would see them where they're at and he would just know like man this cannot be an easy punishment, but you know, not my will, but yours be done. Right. Um, and it's, it's to think of like just the significance of that, his best friend betraying him. Uh, like this was not going to be like an easy finish, you know, no. one thing just to be like speared and killed immediately, but like to be betrayed by his best friends uh, or his, his best friend with a kiss. And then, you know, to have his disciples scatter 
to be alone on the cross, to go through uh, the anguish and the pain to which he had to go through to, to breathe the last seven things that he said from the cross. Like, all of this to say, like, he saw this when he said, this is the cup uh, that uh, has, has to pass through me. Like, right. I think when we imagine, like, the, the cross, like, we, we kind of skip that part. Yeah. We kind of skip the emotional anguish and pain of watching what Jesus would have to go through. Um, you know, like even as we just think right now, 2020 of coronavirus, like one of the yeah. worst things that's happening is people getting sick and having to die alone. Yeah. Um, you know, you're not allowed to have people in the room. Everyone has to stay six feet away. Uh, people aren't allowed to be in close proximity to you to encourage you and lift up your spirits. Like that's just not, not imagined right now because it's like a health health risk. Well, in this time period, I mean, Jesus was alone from the time he was betrayed in the courtyard to the trial, to the carrying of the cross, to being up on the cross. Like, and he saw that. And I think right. that's the anguish that he was experiencing. It wasn't like, Hey, this is going to be like physically harmful. This was like emotionally like exhausting and draining. This was spiritually, I'm sure ex- emotionally and spiritually and physically exhausting and draining. So that's the cup that we, we experience watching Jesus yeah. suffer here. Would you agree with that? I, I think so. Um, it, I mean, it's such a rich, I mean, there, there's been so much written about the, the moment of the cross. And we'll talk about that more in the next episode in part two. Right. But yeah, as far as Jesus anticipating that, yeah, I think it makes sense to me that this this was a guy that who, who knew and had this particular vision of himself uh, that he was somehow, again, kind of being this, this representative of, um, we'll call it Israel, right? Um, and may, maybe as we see, if we can peek through um, where the rest of the Christian story goes, a reconstituted Israel, um, uh, Israel as it was always meant to be. Um, but he's going on behalf of like God's people here. Um, yeah, and there's so much, I mean, we could talk about you know, the imagery in, in Genesis about all of this. It's, again, I think this shows that the Gospels are very, um, we've talked a lot about Passover here, but at the same time, there is all this rich imagery from all over the Hebrew Bible that these authors knew very well, and we're bringing in to tell the story of Jesus um, and to say this is what he was about. And I think there's plenty of good evidence, that, again, Jesus himself was doing the same thing, drawing on those stories, picking that symbolism that it, uh, imagery. So yeah, I, I agree with what you're, what you're saying here. Yeah. So, um, we just kind of want to wrap up to and conclude, um, the end of the series. Like, do you think, uh, he seems like quite ap- apocalyptic here, dramatic, surprising, you know, what, how do you see this ending? Is it, is this like not how you picture Jesus in the Christianity ending? <laughs> or is this like, you know, we, we hear about fables in ancient history. Um, and we've talked a lot about Passover because I think we're wanting to like, I mean, God obviously had his chosen people and he had his chosen son come through those chosen people. And so we right. see the fulfillment and that's what Passover means to us as Christians is like, man, we can, we can celebrate that with the Jews, but we've already experienced uh, the redemptive side of that. Right. And so I'm just kind of curious when you, when you look at history, how do you, how do you summarize this, this Palm Sunday, I guess? Uh, I would summarize it like this, that, that Jesus does not seem to be, to me, just some sort of like nice moral, part of what we, we 
of trying to like disabuse people of, I think, in these first episodes is a sort of popular image of Jesus that he's this nice moral teacher, that all religions are equal. Okay, this goes to the heart of Christianity in a lot of ways and say, okay, is he really just like this nice moral teacher or philosopher or, you know, whatever? I, th- I think he's much more like sharply, his profile is much sharper than that. Um, he does seem quite apocalyptic. Uh, and by apocalyptic, uh, he, he fits with the apocalyptic literature of, say, Daniel, which we'll talk about next time, um, or Zechariah, for that matter, or um, uh, some of the stuff, say, in Isaiah, which can be, people debate if that's apocalypse, but, you know, we'll leave it there. Um, he's surprisingly, like, dramatic and adversarial, and he's aggressive, right? This is definitely not the Jesus you typically meet in children's church. This is a man who seems to clearly understand he's got an agenda right he's got a bone to pick and he's here picking it you know at a very politically sensitive moment and again when you ground him in this world in the story of israel and the that national identity when you start grounding him in you know what did palestine and judea look like how important the temple was uh probably some of the corruptions that seem to show through in history that there, there were some crookednesses with how the temple operated. Um, you can see why someone like Jesus coming from Galilee and his followers would have not necessarily liked the temple. Um, and so at the very least, even if you don't think Jesus is you know, God or the Messiah, you could at least say that he makes sense in ancient history. Um, and that he made sense in a particular moment in history, in a particular place in time. Like if, if someone else in ancient history, like Socrates or Julius Caesar or whoever went around in their own home culture and were saying and doing the sorts of things that Jesus was doing, it wouldn't have made any sense. But Jesus's words, um, again, even if you just, you're a skeptic about that, you have to at least, I think, grant him that he makes sense to this world, Um, that he, he is engaging in conversations, debates, and problems that really existed on the ground. So, so no, he's not some sort of vague fairy tale, fable character, um, nor I think is he some sort of idiot or like a rebel who sort of accidentally, or or idiot who accidentally got himself killed, right? Or got himself in trouble or just pushed the envelope a little too far with an oppressive regime. Um, No, actually, I think he was a person who was making like very specific symbolic claims about himself Mm -hmm. Uh, and who was making sense, who makes sense in the world um, that he's supposed to have lived in, based on what the Gospels are telling us. Um, So again, you you might be a skeptic at the end of the day, but I still want to say you have to at least grant that Jesus described in the Gospels, he makes quite a bit of sense to to that world. And that's where I think I I, I would, yeah. No, I, I... I love the story of Passover or Palm Sunday all the way up to the crucifixion. Cause I think, uh, I think it stirs with a lot of hearts today, like this hunger for like, uh, righteousness, uh, the hunger for a savior, the hunger for like the, the wrong to be turned right. And I, I could see probably in this time in history, especially with the Roman empire, like they wanted a Messiah, like they were starving for it. And so this man comes and he's like proclaiming these things and they, the people wanted to have hope. You know, and so you you go to this trial, and you know you have divisive words, and people don't really know is this the Messiah? Well, right. who knows? Let's you know, and then he gets crucified, and it just gets, uh, it's you could see almost the hope of everyone kind of shattering because yeah. this is like the story they've seen before, uh, and I and I love the sense of like 
of Jesus. Cause you're right. He was so calculated with his words yep. to the point where Pilate's challenging him and he literally doesn't even say anything. And I know right. we're going to dive into this more next week, which is why I want to invite you all back. <laughs> um, yes. You know, it, there's just so much. And I love talking about the trial. Like I have uh, done a lot of study on the trial and the actual walk to the cross. I've been in Jerusalem. I've seen kind of the landscape around there. It's really fascinating. Uh, and I, I do want to kind of, you know, cut off here so we can tune in next time and share more on that. But did you have any closing thoughts or anything you want to mention before we wrap up? I think this is a good place to, to, to stop, um, and we'll come back with the trial, the crucifixion, um, and maybe we'll start with the, the burial, um, or we'll save that for the resurrection. But this, this part of the story often, unfortunately, kind of gets left behind, and I think it's important to bring this into, uh, uh, sort of cast light on it, bring it into relief, because um, it's the, the gospel writers, I think, think it's very important. I think we should, too. Amen. All right. Well, you guys take care and tune in next time as we talk more about the trial and the crucifixion. Uh, and then the third part will be uh, mostly about the resurrection. So uh, we love you guys. Thanks for tuning in. God bless you. Have a good week.